This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. This week, you'll hear something a little different to the normal show. It's an interview with two researchers who are examining the way Australia's High Court makes their decisions on what cases get to be heard. Before you get a hearing in the High Court, two or three judges will look at your special leave to appeal. Think of it like an application to the court to decide whether it should proceed to the full hearing. Anita Stumkey and Pam Stewart have been looking at the success of these special leaves to appeal using big data. Well, is it big data? And are we creating dangerous precedent by applying data to the law? Keep listening to find out. Hi, I'm Pam Stewart and I'm a senior lecturer in the law faculty at UTS. Hi, I'm Professor Anita Stumpke and I'm also from the law faculty at UTS. So how does the High Court actually work? Well, uh, the High Court is the highest court of appeal in Australia. It's the last opportunity for a litigant to have their case adjudicated after they've been through a state court system or the federal court. The High Court decides which cases it will hear on the basis of which cases the court thinks are important cases for the development of the law in Australia or because the interests of justice require that there should be another appellate hearing. And in order to decide which cases it will hear, the High Court has a system whereby litigants have to seek special leave to appeal to the High Court and the High Court sifts through those special leave applications and decides which of those cases should be given a hearing in the full High Court. So it's not just any old Joe Blow can walk into the High Court? No. Once upon a time, there was an appeal as of right to the High Court, but the numbers of cases that were seeking appeals was far too great for the High Court workload to cope with. And so the special leave um, application process was introduced, I think, in the 1980s. And how many appeals uh, or leaves to appeal are the High Court getting each year? Well, that would depend, I guess, about which sort of time period we're talking about. I mean, in the time period that we covered, which was almost around two years, we sort of isolated down to 785 decisions, but there were probably around 900 over that two-year time frame. So it's roughly around 500 a year. And are the justices reading all the appeals, the leave to appeals that they get? We believe so. (laughs) We hope so. Okay, so the leave to appeal comes across the justices' desks. Uh, They decide to go ahead with it. How many actually do go ahead to a hearing, I presume? Uh, In terms of the research we've done, a very small proportion of the total. So it may depend, for example, upon whether we're talking about civil cases or criminal cases, uh, but the success rates are really uh, very small. The special leave applications are heard by the court either by way of an oral hearing or on the papers where the court considers the application without the need for any formal appearances or argument in court. It seems, well, that's one of the things we're interested in finding out, whether the cases that that have an oral hearing are more likely to be granted leave than those that are heard on the papers. So far, there doesn't seem to be a large Mm. difference. One of the reasons we're interested in that particularly is because last year, 
um, there were changes introduced in the High Court to move more to reading the papers rather than to having oral hearings. And that has a particular historical, I guess, ramification in terms of our legal system. There's an argument that oral hearings um, allow litigants to present their case in a way that might be more forceful. Um, That, of course, is disputed and there's not evidence that I'm aware of um, either way on that, but that might be something that our research can point to in the future. We might be able to explore that in more depth. So part of what we're doing, as Pam's just pointed out, is looking at how it is procedurally that people can access justice and whether or not changes that, I guess, the High Court is forced to make or chooses to make because of the workload that they're under and efficiencies, whether that will have some sort of impact perhaps in different practice areas or in different litigants. So why do some applicants get the oral hearing and some don't? The reason for that would seem to be the more complex matters, the matters that perhaps stand to have a higher likelihood of success in terms of the appeal process will be given that um, ability to have the oral hearing. Perhaps another reason, I guess, is that the High Court workload is distributed amongst, amongst different practice areas, and some of those take a proportionately large amount of time with a larger amount of litigants, and those matters seem to be done more in the papers. And so your research, is it specifically just looking at whether or not uh, appellant gets special leave to appeal or does it go right through the whole process to see whether or not they're winning? No, it's about special leave to appeal and who is successful and who is not. But we're also interested in a whole host of other aspects of special leave to appeal cases. For example, one of the things we've been looking at are the kinds of legal representation that people have. Some litigants are self-represented. Others have lawyers appearing for them. Some have senior counsel appearing. Some don't. Uh, We've looked at who the senior counsel are and who the junior counsel are. Are they men? Are they women? Sadly, there are not very many women appearing in the High Court. So we've looked at a whole host of aspects of special leave applications. I've just mentioned a few, Anita Mm. might. And basically, it's really anything that we can glean from the publicly accessible documents that are on OSLI, which is the free legal information database. So this information is freely available to anyone and also on the High Court database. So we've Mm. we've double-checked it. And the idea is we take the documents that are available and we've coded for absolutely any item of information on those documents that we can. And that's one of the reasons why we had to manually code Um, which is sort of an impediment in relation to using this sort of data analytics in law that we've had to actually sit down with each of those sort of what we ended up with 758 decisions and have our up to 40 sort of attributes that we're looking for. So things like Pam's already mentioned, plus which um, if it was, for example, a video link where the High Court is hearing a matter through a video, so they might be in Canberra and the matter's being heard in, say, South Australia, what was the time of the video link, what was the location, also things like what jurisdiction perhaps the matter actually originated from, and then hopefully what we're looking for is some sort of cross-correlation of those things. So if a matter took a long time to hear, would it then be more li- more likely to appear in the High Court in its full-blown form? So there's a, there's a number of attributes. Anything that was on those documents is what we mm. tried to distill. Mm. So the data is actually readily available and it seems mm. to be quite a transparent process. It is. Mm. The, the data is readily available because Ostley, it's a database which has on it all judgments of the High Court and indeed state Supreme Courts, many courts around Australia, uh, so that the judgments from those courts are all easily accessible. 
It also has on it the dispositions of the special leave applications, uh, which is what we're interested in, obviously. But they're not there in such a way that you can digitally search them. Hmm. You can't. If I can we use can't that train a computer as yet to data mine what we're doing, which is why the process we went through took us a relatively long time um, to sit down and extract all the information. We actually so had to. We actually had to read each decision and extract the information from the decision. Mm. We could, we did try to organise for somebody to have a computer do that, but it turned mm. out to be impossible. Mm. The only things we could sort of computer mine would be like the parties' names very obvious things that you could train a computer to do. And that's one of the interesting things, I think, about this sort of data analytics and law is that we can't make the assumption that we'll be able to use analytics in the same way that you might in other disciplines. And that's why, I guess, there's this notion of it being perhaps clever data or smart data rather than big data. Yeah, that's really interesting because everyone keeps talking about artificial intelligence in the law being able to make decisions. But if you can't, and law is all about precedent, of course, so if those artificial intelligence machines can't utilise previous data, then how are they going to make a decision about a case in front of them? As I understand it, and I'm not a data scientist, but as I understand it, the information, the the cases, the documents, the judgments that are available at present online would have to be made available in a different form to enable them to be data mined. It would be possible, mm. but the way they are at present they're the documents that are um, published by the courts. Mm. Those documents can't be data mined in their present state. Mm. So what what would need to happen to make them able to do that? Well, it's interesting because um, I think firstly what Pam said and then secondly, I mean, sort of the work that we're doing, if that's done on a broader and bigger scale, well, then we've sort of enabled this to happen. So it's, it's like being at the beginning of creating a mountain. Um, you know, we're sort of building or thinking about the foundations and I guess that's where both of us are looking at the data as something that we wish to be used fairly because if this data or our data set even if it's limited form is made available for people to use you can see how conclusions may be drawn from it that aren't necessarily um, going to be a fair use of data or a fair use of research. So I think it's important always, and what we'd like to stress, I think, is that with the use of data and the law, we're interested in issues like access to justice and justice and, and knowing, I guess, that the legal system is something that operates in a way that has broader goals. So that's an important part of it. Because based on these the characteristics you're coding, the gender of the council, the matter, you could plug that into the computer one day mm. and say to a client, your case has a 20% chance of success. And that's kind of goes against everything it's that the law scary. is. very scary. And that's exactly right. And that's where um, some jurisdictions that may be ahead of us in relation to the use of data do point that out. So analysts in this area are saying this is only, in terms of using it within the legal system, something that is an estimate, it's a guess, it's not something that's actually accurate in terms of how it is that justice prevails. So one of the things, for example, we're interested in is if there is no pattern in our data set, what does that actually say? Mm. Does that mean that the law is actually more just if there is no pattern? Um, Or does it mean that there are patterns and we haven't yet found them? So perhaps with data and the law, we'll actually just end up with more questions rather than being able to answer, you know, and say, well, you've got a 20% success rate. Because the law is based on precedent and following past judgments. And if there's no patterns, then what's the point of precedent? Well, 
president's not really um, something which has a great import in relation to the cases that are seeking special leave. Whether or not a case is granted special leave does not depend on a decision previously. It's not a matter of precedent. It's whether that case um, has at its centre a an important question for the law in Australia or whether it's a case where the where the justice of the situation demands that it have a final hearing in the High Court. There are specific reasons that the High Court grants special leave, which is set out in the enabling legislation for the High Court, the Judiciary Act. So precedent doesn't really operate in relation to whether or not a case is granted special leave. If you were dealing with the final substantive cases that are heard by the High Court, then yes, precedent, of course, is hugely important. But on the on the issue of whether or not a case gets special leave, precedent is not a relevant consideration. Mm. But your question, I guess, also raises um, that notion of whether or not that type of formulaic approach can operate at the lower levels of the court mm. system um, and what the differential is then with the higher courts applying precedent to particular cases. Um, I mean, always with that idea that I mean, precedent, as we know, is not something that's going to necessarily apply in the same way to all cases. If it did so, well, then the common law wouldn't change. And that's, of course, the wonder of the common law, that it does change um, in the way in which it does. So I think it's an interesting question, but it might, as Pam's pointed out, depend upon the particular process and the particular procedure in the court and the jurisdiction, the hierarchy and the matter and the the area that you're you're Mm. looking at. Mm. So when we're talking about when these uh, special leave applications are coming before the justices, uh, is it just one justice looking at it and being like, hey, this is a good, or are there a number of them looking over it? Generally, for special leave applications, they have two High Court judges who who hear or look, decide on the papers whether something should be granted special leave. Occasionally there are three, but usually two. Whereas when a case goes to trial or goes to a he- final hearing in the High Court, there would normally be five justices hearing the case, sometimes seven. And Anita, you mentioned that we don't have a lot of data usage in the legal system in Australia. What about other jurisdictions? Yeah, my understanding is, and again, um, it's from sort of reading around the research we've done here and the previous research we've done on um, our negligence case analysis. My understanding from that is that the um, American scholarship is, I wouldn't say ahead, but is more expansive in relation to this sort of discussion. But that said, in Australia, we have had now a growing body of scholars that are looking at courts, court systems, and looking at them in terms of both qualitative and quantitative data. So we do have a growing history of this in this country, but we are not, I believe, to the point that we have sort of the body of work that the United States has. And that's explicable, I think, just purely in terms of population difference. But we do have something that I think is quite solid. And are you worried about this data that you're putting out into the world? How do you make sure it does get used responsibly? Yeah, well, at the moment, where where we are is we're going to produce our or disseminate our results. Mm. And one of the things we will consider with that is whether or not and how we build on this data set. And part of that would be looking at whether we disseminate the data itself mm. and allow people to, to sort of to use, to, to, to use that. And that's a question that we haven't yet got to because I think part of it for, for us is 
as you raised before, I think there's so many interesting things we could do with it in terms of the snapshot in time, whether or not it's broadened mm. out into something that's a complete mm. historical data set, whether or not we map this against now the changes that are currently happening in the High Court to see whether or not there's any difference. And again, though, with the overriding premise being to use it responsibly and fairly. Mm. 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 That's right. It- if the data were in the public realm, as Anita says, we'd want to make sure that it wasn't used for the wrong purposes. I mean, people say, well, how could it be used for the wrong purposes? But you could do conceivably some slightly nasty things with it. For example, you might look at a particular judge and say, well, who appointed that judge? Was it a Labor government or a Liberal government? And you might make a judgment about what that person's political um, leanings might be. And you might then look at that person's decisions and somehow try and draw conclusions about that. Well, I think that would be a particularly not only nasty but unethical thing to do. And I'd be very concerned that our data couldn't be used for those kinds of purposes, which would achieve nothing from the law's viewpoint except to sensationalise what happens in the High Court. Mm. So I I think we need to be a bit careful. So previously you've looked at negligence um, in the High Court. What sort of findings did you glean from that data? Well, there were a lot. We were interested in who, what kind of litigants were uh, appealing to the High Court in negligence cases. I suppose it wouldn't be surprising to know that many of the cases were brought by corporations or government bodies councils and so on, often they were the people who were appealing to the High Court rather than individual litigants. So, you know, you can draw whatever conclusion from that, but the inescapable conclusion is that the that the well-financed litigant is more likely to go to the High Court than the not-so-well-financed litigant. So that was one of the things we discovered. We also looked at how often plaintiffs won or lost. We looked at how often women and children were um, parties in High Court cases in negligence, not very many, we discovered. Um, There were a lot of things that we Mm. came up with. We published that research. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't have the actual (laughs) percentages. But our results were not that surprising, really, I don't think. But that's what led on to this research, because when we were looking at the fact that there were governments um, and there were big corporations coming to court in negligence actions, it sort of raised the question then, well, if there's only a small proportion over a 10-year period of negligence actions actually getting through to the High Court and they're being driven through by that sort of body of litigants, then what happens with the rest of the High Court's time? Uh, is that similar? You know, Is it really only the, the, the people with the deep pockets and perhaps the interest in stopping future actions that are actually getting to the High Court? Or is it the, the individual, you know, the person who's suffered the loss and the person who's willing to fight and the person who, um, I don't know, can find, can find people to help them or take it on? Are they the ones who are really passionate about what's happening? So that, the findings from that research sort of fed into, mm. fed into this as a, a, as a larger piece of research working from that. Which it goes back to that question of access to justice, mm. because presumably it's quite expensive to go to the High Court. It is, I'm it sure. It is, and it takes a very long time mm. from when your matter starts. How long does it take? Oh, some of these matters... Years. Years, yes. Some, years. some well, criminal matters, obviously, not usually so long, because often um, in a criminal case, the, the um, convicted person will be in jail. Um, so if if there's a criminal appeal, 
generally they seem to be a little more um, hurriedly pushed through the system, let's say. But in many of the civil cases, from, from the first day that the case went to court in a lower court till the day they end up in the high court might be three, four, five years easily. Is there an opportunity for this data to change the way the High Court looks at special leave if you, for example, find that women are not getting a look in? Yeah, I mean, one of our basic premises of of embarking on this was access to justice and how the justice system operates. And that's at all levels. That was for the litigants. That's also for parties. That's one of the reasons why we were looking at gender in terms of um, who is it that's representing litigants in the High Court and looking at how it is that um, barristers, for example, are being briefed. So one of the things that we're possibly going to look at is, well, does government brief you know, female barristers perhaps more than non-government? And if so, why so? Why are women pushing up through the legal profession in such numbers? And yet when you're looking at high court applications, there are so few women briefed. And perhaps there's very good reasons uh, for that. Um, but the data at least allows us to springboard off into that and ask those questions. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more info, head to 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. We'll be back to our usual format next week. See you then.